Thank you for tuning in to today's audio message. Here at Temple Baptist Church, we are a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you. And uh, we're just thrilled that you would share part of your rainy Sunday with us right here at Temple Baptist. I wanted to say uh, thank you to uh, James and Cindy Brody. Um, they're here for the next five months. They're actually staying over at the church house. And uh, what a great opportunity over the next five months that you would invite them to your house. I will say some of the greatest memories that I have as a child was when we had missionaries at our house. I mean, uh, our family, I always beg, can we, can we have the missionaries stay at our house? Can we have missionaries come and, and share stories about what they did? And uh, it really impacted me as a child. So I, for you young families, I want to encourage you, take the opportunity, they're right here with us for the next five months, to invite them over, so get to know them, get to know what they're doing. Let your kids have the opportunity to interact uh, with them. So um, it's just really good to have them uh, home with us. Listen, if you're just joining us for the first time, or the first time in a long time, uh, we are making our way through the book of Philippians. And our summer series is called No Matter What. And um, Pastor Dave did such an awesome job uh, getting us going at the beginning of the series. And then Terry Sanderson came with an awesome message. And Pastor Glenn kicked it out of the park last week. And I feel this pressure mounting on my shoulders to keep the energy and engagement going. The whole premise of our series is that no matter what, you can have joy in your life. Which is kind of crazy when you think about it. In fact, if maybe you're going through something really, really hard and you're struggling even now, and you say, Donald, be, be serious. You can't be joyful in every situation. Uh, you must be on crack for you to make a comment like that, that you can actually be joyful in every situation of life. And I'm not really saying that. I'm saying that's what the Bible says. The Bible seems to point to the fact that even in your darkest night, you can have joy in your life. And by the way, I need to hear this. I need to be reminded of this. Um, and I hope together we're going to discover how that is actually possible. And really, there's no better person to address this subject than the Apostle Paul. If you know anything about um, his history, uh, you know his life is not, is not a bed of roses. It's one hardship after another hardship after another hardship. In fact, we get a snapshot, a snapshot of his biography in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when it says five times, on five separate occasions, I have been flogged, 39 whips. You can imagine that. Like 39 times, five different times. How scarred his back would be. How scarred his arms would be. The pain that he would have to endure. And five times that happened. In fact, we're also told three times he was beaten with, with rods. And in fact, one time he was stoned. And I don't mean recreationally either. I, I, I mean, people literally took rocks and, and, and threw and left him for dead on the side of the road. Uh, it says three times, Paul says, I was actually shipwrecked. In fact, one night when I was shipwrecked, I was left out in the middle of the sea all day and all night long before I was rescued. I have been constantly on the move, he says. I'm in danger from my fellow Jews. I'm in danger from Gentiles. I'm in danger from uh, false teachers. He says, I know what it is to be hungry and thirsty. I've gone days without eating. I know what it is to be cold and naked. Like the Apostle Paul's life is just constantly up and down, up and down, up and down. And if anyone had the right 
to kind of grumble, it would be the Apostle Paul. I think all of us would give him a pass to say, you know what, Paul, you're right. Your life has been nothing but hardship after hardship. Go ahead and complain. But that is not the Apostle Paul at all. And when you read through this book, if you didn't know the author, because the book is so full of joy, you would assume that the author is writing this book from some beach on the Italian Riviera with a beautiful you know, sunset in front of him. Or maybe he's you know, drinking a, a cold drink after filling his belly with prime rib. Or, or maybe the author is in some mountainside, all-inclusive retreat, breathing in the fresh air, getting ready for a campfire. You would almost think that's where the writer must be getting all of his inspiration about joy, but that's not true. And what we discovered is actually Paul, as he's writing this, is actually writing it from prison, from a Roman prison. In fact, in Acts chapter 28, we're told he was there for two years in prison waiting for his court date. Two years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, he is chained to a Roman guard. And that's his inspiration, to write a book about joy. Now, Paul had big dreams one day of being able to go to Rome as a preacher, but he winds up there as a prisoner. That's how he gets to Rome. And when you read through this book of Philippians, you cannot help but just be overwhelmed by this theme of joy. It almost makes your head spin when you read through it. I mean, you almost want to say, Paul, how can you talk that way? But how can, you, how can you think that way? Because really, the book of Philippians, it's like a manual on how to be joyful even when life does not go according to the way you planned it. And all of us have had seasons in our life that have not gone according to plan. Some of us, though, not only has life not gone according to plan, it's like, it's like, Life is being sucked out of us during a certain season of life. Any hope of a better day, really, is lost in the fog. And Paul is saying, actually, even in the midst of all your problems and all your circumstances, it's possible to have joy, and not just joy. He says you can have joy in abundance. And that's when you go, Paul, you're crazy. How is that even possible? Well, in week one, Pastor Dave did a good job explaining the difference between, you know, happiness and joy. There's a big gulf in between them, actually. Completely different. And, and, and I like how Terry Sanderson said in the second week, happiness is based on your happenings. And how can I be happy when my happenings are not happening the way I planned them to happen? Like, how is that possible? See, joy is much deeper. It's never, never, never based on our circumstances. It's never based on what's happening around us. And that's why Paul says you can have joy, and you actually can have it in abundance. And this book really is a letter. It's a letter written to a church in Philippi, a church that the Apostle Paul planted about 30 years after Jesus died. And, and let me just tell you how this church even started. See, Paul was in Philippi preaching the gospel, and the very first person to ever respond what was a, an entrepreneur, a lady business owner, quite a wealthy lady, actually. And uh, her name is Lydia, and she was a seller of uh, fine fabrics, purple fabrics. And, and she responded to the message that Paul was giving. 
And, and we would say, oh, she got saved. Some people would say, oh, she got born again. But she, she had an encounter with Jesus. She understood what it was that Jesus had done for her. And what is amazing, not only did she believe, but the Bible says her whole household did. And her whole household wanted to be identified with Jesus, and they were baptized. And this is the beginning of what most people say is the very first church in all of Europe. And so Paul continues to preach in Philippi, and there's this one lady who's just kind of, it's kind of getting on Paul's nerve, actually, as the Bible says, right? Causing all kinds of trouble for Paul. And it was a woman that was actually filled with a demon. And uh, even though what she was saying is true, because she kept saying, these men are from the God of the Most High, and they're telling you how to be saved. She kept repeating that over and over and over and over again. But it was causing Paul some problems. And so Paul looks at this lady who's been causing him trouble, and cast the demon out of her. Well, now that's when everything broke loose. Because the slave owners of the, of the girl had counted on her for revenue. Because of her possession of demons, she was able to predict the future. And now their revenue was all gone. And so they immediately went to the authorities, the city council, the magistrates. And said, so these men are causing problems. And basically they have robbed us of our living. And so Paul and Silas, they're, they're thrown into prison after they have been whipped. So, now picture that, okay? They're preaching the gospel. They cast a demon out of this um, lady. Now they're in prison after they've been whipped. And the Bible says, amazing. I, you wouldn't even believe this. But the Bible actually says, why they are in prison, that night, they began to sing. <laughs> like, who sings? In those kind of situations. I've just been whipped. I've just been flogged. And it says, in prison, him and Silas, Paul and Silas, begin to sing. And I'm picturing Paul saying, hey, hey, Silas, what's that key? Key of G? Or is that C? You know, uh, that song, um, Swing Down, Sweet Chariot. Oh, no, that wasn't written back then. But uh, one of those songs, you know, Silas and Paul are singing. And it says, as they were singing and praying and praising God, in the middle of what? Being in prison after being whipped, it says that a mighty earthquake came. And it actually opened all the, the prison doors and it released all the chains that, they were, chains that they were bound to. And that's when I would have said, thank you, Lord, I am out of here. No one asked the question, I am out of here. Lord, you've delivered me. I'll, I won't come back to the city. I'll get on my horse and I am out of here. But you know what's amazing? That's not what they did. That's not what they did. They stayed in the prison. They stayed in their cells. In fact, after the earthquake had happened, the, the jail keeper was, was so distraught because he knew all the prisoners had left. He was getting ready to kill himself because that's what happened in Rome. If you lost a prisoner, you gave your life for him. And so just as the um, prison guard, the jail keeper, is ready to plunge that sword into him, Paul and Silas says, no, 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 no. No, don't do it. We're all here. And that has such a profound effect on this jailkeeper that they had the opportunity to escape and to run, and they didn't. The Bible says, actually, the jailkeeper received the message that Paul was given, how that Jesus had come and died. And again, not only the jailkeeper, but it says his entire family believed, and they were baptized. And that began the first church in Europe. That began this small church. These were the charter members of the church 
of Philippi. And of course, what was, amazing, what was really got the magistrates and the councils really worried, they found out later that Paul actually was a Roman citizen. And for a Roman citizen to get flogged and thrown without a court, um, an opportunity to defend themselves in court, was unheard of. And so the counselors were like, scared, and so they quietly wanted them to leave. But Paul and Silas wouldn't do that. They wanted to make sure the city saw the counselors come by. It's really an amazing story how that all started. And Philippi actually is a very distinct city in the Roman world. Anyone reading this letter would have known that this city had all, all kinds of rights and privileges, very different than a lot of cities actually in Rome. And, and Philippi is actually named after Philip II, which is the father of Alexander the Great. And there was hardly any other city in all of Rome that had the privileges and rights because Philippi is actually the battlefield of the Roman Civil War took place there. Now, you may remember this in high school, you know, when Julius Caesar is assassinated and, and civil war breaks out, this is where it happens, right here in Philippi. And, and Julius Caesar's heirs, which were uh, Mark Antony, if you remember that whole story about him and Cleopatra and, that, and, their, and their romance, you know, the queen of Egypt and, and Mark Antony, and then Octavian, and so they're going to go out, and they're going to find out who the assassins are, and they go to war. And uh, you will know Octavian, because later he becomes Caesar Augustus, which we know that story, um, when Jesus was born. And so they go out to battle, and uh, Octavian, because they won the battle, they gave all the veterans Roman citizenship. Out of 70 million people that lived in Rome, only less than 10% actually had citizenship. And, and the veterans of that war who came and fought to win the battle went back to Philippi, and so many had Roman citizenship, which was really um, a, uh, something to be desired, something to be envied, much like having season tickets for the New England Patriots. You know, it's something to be valued and, and envied. I mean, everybody wanted to possess Roman citizenship but you could only inherit it or pay a very, very high price to obtain it. So this is a major city. It's a wealthy city, lots of gold mines around it. It'd be like, uh, you know, someone writing a, a church in Calgary or, or Vancouver or, or, or Montreal. This is no s small town in some small hamlet inside of a mountain. This is no small town like Muscadavid Harbor in Nova Scotia. This is a thriving metropolis. And this letter that Paul writes is written about 10 years after the church was planted. And Paul is telling us in this letter that you actually can have joy in the midst of heartache, but what it's going to take is a mind shift. It's going to require a mind shift. And I think all of us have experienced a mind shift one time. Or another. You know, maybe you've met somebody for the first time, and after you've met them, you're like, eh. I don't really care for them. don't really connect with them. I don't like the way they talk. Yeah, I don't like the way they smell, you know. And then you get some new information. And somebody shares a story maybe about this person. And all of a sudden, wow, your, your entire perspective changes. You've had a mind shift to what you once thought to what now you're thinking. You know, maybe you start, uh, you've had a bad day. You know, you're backing out of your driveway and you hit the fire hydrant on your way out. And you're like, ugh. 
and, and to soothe your, your nerves, you go to the drive-in at Tim Hortons and get your extra-large coffee. And as it's being passed to you, you know, the lid's not on tight, and so, of course, it spills on you. Now you're running late for work, and you're on your way to work, and all of a sudden there's blue and red lights behind you because you're going a little too fast. You get to work, and your computer has crashed. You've lost all the work that you did yesterday, and you're just grinding your teeth, waiting for 5 o'clock because this is the worst day of your life. And then you hear some news that your friend spouse has just died. And all of a sudden, everything changes. You've had a mind shift. What you thought once was the worst day possible isn't. It's a mind shift. It's a, it's a different perspective. And that's why I like learning uh, new things. It, it gives me a new perspective. Like I always assumed, I think I said this before, I've always assumed that Christians would vote the same way that I voted. I thought all Christians voted the same way. And then I found out... Christians vote for the Liberal Party and the NDP gave me a completely different perspective of, of uh, politics, right? I grew up in a great church. I loved my church. And, and, and our perspective at that church that I grew up in was that King James was the only version that you could read. And anything else, well, that was heresy. And then, you know, you, as you get older and you study, you think, oh, I, I have a slightly different perspective. Um... Uh, one of the things that I had to work on is that I always wanted, I always wanted my, my home to be spotless before anybody would come. You can't have everybody at your house unless it's spotless. In fact, I, you know, one time, this is a true story, I'm embarrassed to tell you. I had just had 30 teens at my house. We had a Bible study. It was Thursday night. They had left. I was living in an apartment building, and, um, and the fire alarms went off. All the teens were gone. I just fed them. The place was a wreck. And the fire alarm is going off, and I'm like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, my place is a wreck. If the firemen come in here, I can't, I can't look like this. So I remember the apartment building, people are leaving, they're going out to the parking lot, not me. I'm loading the dishwasher, I'm cleaning the bathroom sink, and I wanted to make sure there were vacuum lines in the carpet before I left the building. And then all of a sudden, oh, Donald, get a grip. You need a mind shift, man. Your life was worth more than vacuum lines. Well, as you read through the book of Philippians, you cannot help but see for yourself that Paul talks a lot about the mind. Paul references it over and over and over again. You've heard the slogan, what you think is what you will become. And Paul has been talking all through, through this book about what are you thinking about? Um, what are you remembering? Uh, what is your attitude? Because he's, he's talking about a mind shift. Because there really is a battle that goes on in the mind. That's why that book that Joyce Myers wrote, The Battlefield of the Mind, it's so true. Because what happens up here eventually gets displayed down here. So when the pressure is poured on you, everything that you've been storing up here eventually will be played out. So it's a battlefield of the mind. So how important, how vital that our minds have the right perspective. And so today I want to look at a few verses that I hope that can help you, help myself, and as, we, as we change our perspective. So if you have your Bibles or some kind of electronic device you can follow along with, turn to the book of Philippians. And if the Bible is fairly new to you, Philippians is in the New Testament. Right after Corinthians, it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I used to always have a hard time finding that, and then I just remember General Electric Power Company. 
G-E-P-C. And like, oh, Philippians is the number three book in that. Philippians chapter two. And verse one, it says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and by the way, there is encouragement, by the way, there is encouragement. He says, if there's any comfort from his love, and by the way, there is, there is comfort from his love. Uh, if, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, and there is, if there's any of that tenderness and compassion from the Spirit, yes, there is. Then he says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Why is it so important to be like-minded? That's what the Apostle Paul is saying, being like-minded. If you've ever read the book of James, You'll read that verse that says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. In the book of Romans, it says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may be able to prove what is that perfect will of God. I think of Corinthians when he says, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. He tells the Philippians, actually in Philippians chapter 4, whatever is noble and pure and right and lovely and admirable, think on those things. And Proverbs says, what a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So how you think determines what you will become. What you think will determine what you become. And Paul's whole life was about Christ. His whole life was about going out and telling people this incredible story how, how that God would, would send his one and only perfect, blameless son and that he would send him to the cross for their sins. And that's why in chapter 1, Paul is able to say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is actually even better. Very rarely, very rarely do you ever find people with a perspective that death could be better than life. Because we love life. We love being with our family. We love being with our, our friends. We work hard to stick around here as long as we can. Sometimes I think we think heaven is almost second best of what we have here. But it isn't. That's why, Christ, that's why Paul could say, for me to live is Christ. My whole life is about Christ. But to be quite honest, if I should die, it will be far better for him. Now, if you took time to read through the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you study the life of Christ, you may convince yourself that, that there's no way I can live my life like Christ. I remember when I was, um, oh, maybe 20 years ago, very popular were those bracelets, WWJD, What Would Jesus Do Bracelets. And so when you were ever coming to a point where you had to make decisions, you think, oh, what would Jesus do in this situation? I remember that was very popular back then. But some people say, well, it's impossible to live like Christ. Because quite frankly, Christ is way too kind. I'm not like that. Um, he, he's just so compassionate. Like Christ is, is so generous. He's so forgiving. He reeks of humility. He's so encouraging. He's so full of grace. He's so pleasing to God. I could never be like that. I heard Craig Rochelle say this, and I, and I love it. If you think like Jesus thought, then you can live like Jesus lived. Can I say that again? If, if you think like Jesus thought, 
well, then you can live like Jesus lived. If you study how Jesus thought and how he lived, you would discover that his whole thought was to please God and to love people. In fact, he was even asked that very question. What's the most important commandment? He says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people. And Jesus is saying, you, you got to think differently than how the world thinks. you got to take your, your thoughts captive. you got to renew your mind if you're going to think like Jesus thinks so you can live like Jesus lived. Well, in verse 3, let's continue with this. It says in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. I, 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 do nothing? Like nothing, it says, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Does anybody else have a hard time doing that? It says, do nothing. I, I, I find that hard. And, and by the way, I think sometimes we can cleverly disguise some of our selfish ambitions to make it look like we're great human, uh, humanitarians, right? We can easily disguise our ambitions. And even though your ambition, the final result, maybe others are treated better or something, you know down in your side, is this a selfish ambition that I have of mine? I have to constantly check for myself. I'm constantly, Donald, is this something, is this a selfish ambition of yours that you're keeping very quiet? It says do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And that's when you go, seriously? Like, seriously, is that even possible? I mean, how much time <laughs> we think about ourselves. I mean, I'm in the shower thinking about myself, like, hmm, what should I do today? Hmm, how can I, hmm, how can I make a better image of myself? I'm like, hmm, a little more clothes. I'm always thinking. And it says here, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Consider others better than yourself. Which, honestly, that's hard, isn't it? We kind of have our own little class system, don't we? You know, we treat, you know, maybe colleagues one way. We treat someone else this way. Maybe a homeless person, you know, we treat a little bit differently. Like, we kind of have our own system of how we, who we treat uh, nicely or kindly and, and, and not. And when he says, think less of yourself, it's not not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less often. Less often is what he's saying. Think more of others. Look out for the interest of others. I recently flew, a couple weeks ago, I flew to Nova Scotia for a couple days in the middle of the week, and I was um, playing in a, a golf tournament for cystic fibrosis. We were raising money for cystic fibrosis. One of my very close friends, three of their little children, all have cystic fibrosis. And so I usually go down and participate in that tournament, and and Bill and Susan Miller gave me a couple items to take with me. They said, why don't you take this and put it in the silent auction? 
so they, you know, helped raise some more money for cystic fibrosis. They, they gave me a Maple Leaf jersey signed by some famous Toronto Maple Leaf player. They gave me a Montreal Canadian jersey signed by famous Montreal players. They gave me a Canadian jersey from 1972 when the, the Canadians won the gold medal, you know, Yvonne Cornway, Phyllis Vasita, some of those great people. Gave me a hockey stick signed by, you know, the Toronto Maple Leaf team. Now, can you imagine if I took that and sold it on Kijiji and pocketed the money? I mean, that would be so selfish, wouldn't it? When, when it was given to me to share with others. And so, Apostle Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Now, let me just read a couple of passages of Scripture to you. In Luke chapter 14, interesting story. It says, when he noticed, this is Jesus, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And if so, well, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of the fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What about this parable? Uh, Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, look down on everybody else. Jesus tells this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed out loud about himself. He says, God, I am so thankful. I am not like other men, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But then the tax collector stood up at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, this is Jesus saying, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So we're told, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Let's continue to read here. Uh, Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that is Christ Jesus. Your attitude, oh my my goodness, should be the same as Christ Jesus. I have a friend of mine who says this all the time. Your attitude of gratitude will determine your altitude. He says that all the time. How high you're going to fly. You have that attitude of gratitude. Your attitude really can determine the direction of your life. Ever spend a day with somebody who's kind of really negative all the time? It's draining. You spend a day with someone who's upbeat and positive, man, you don't want the day to end. You know, parents, you probably have gone through this maybe once or twice in your life. Or maybe, you know, your teenager had a bad attitude. To the point you want to move away out of the country. And then other times you're like, hey, that's my child. You claim that child because they have a great attitude. A positive attitude can really make a difference in your life. It really can. And so, but too many people just kind of move around. 
Woe is me. I'm, I'm overweight. I'm not athletic. Not married. Those are all the things about me. And you just kind of mope around. Or you can have a different attitude. I love this story. The story, I, I heard this a long time ago. It's a great story. It's about a little boy who said he was the greatest baseball hitter in the world. Little boy. He got his baseball bat. And he said, I'm the greatest baseball player in the world. He threw the ball up and he swung and he missed. He says, I'm the greatest baseball player in the world. He took the ball, threw it up, and swung and he missed. He says, I am the greatest baseball player, hitter in the world. And he threw the ball up and he swung and he missed. And he walked around with his hands up in the air. I am the greatest pitcher in the world. I just struck out the best baseball hitter in the world. It definitely is all in your attitude, isn't it? It's all your perspective. Amazing. Such a small thing as attitude can make such a huge difference in your life. So what is your attitude? What is your perspective? Are you in need of a mind shift? Because I really think you can train your brain to think on the right things. But notice, Paul does not say, have a positive attitude. Although, I think that's a great thing to have. Paul says you, have, you ought to have the attitude of Christ. And so what is Christ's attitude? That's what we need to know. Well, let's look at verse 6. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what's Christ's attitude? You read through that. And if anyone had the, op- had the right to brag, it would be Christ. I am the son of God. My father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Hey, my dad's building a city where the pavement is made out of gold. But Christ was not about self-promotion. It's amazing. Amazing when you, when, when you read about that. Pleasing... God has nothing to do, by the way, with self-promotion. It actually has a lot to do with thinking of yourself less often. It says here, he didn't consider being equal with God something to grasp. You know, when you um, read that passage in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah chapter 14, where Satan wanted to grasp what God had. He says, I will ascend higher than God. I will make my throne greater than I will ascend above the clouds. It was something he wanted to grasp. And that's what Christ wanted to grasp. In fact, uh, the story of the Garden of Eden. Remember Adam and Eve? The serpent comes along and says, you can be like God. It's something that you can grasp and be like him. But that's not Christ. It was something... For him, not to grasp. He made himself nothing. He came to serve those who would be against him. He should have been praised from every mountaintop and valley and river and lake and highway and byways. But he, you know what he came to do? He comes and he kneels on his knees and he washes people's feet. 
That's what Christ came to do. And so back in chapter 1, when the Apostle Paul says, I am a servant of Christ Jesus, he said, I'm a doulos. I am completely and permanently devoted to another. And that was Jesus. One preacher put it this way, serving is not what I do. A servant is who I am. Serving is not what I do. A servant is who I am. And that is a mind shift. Serving is not what I do, but a reflection of who I am. And we're told to have the same attitude as Christ. And I love the fact that we can serve everywhere. It's not just reserved for the church. We can serve everywhere in our community, in our city, and make a profound difference. Remember when Jesus said, I didn't come to be served but I came to serve. And we're to have the same attitude. And we'll wrap up quickly here. Look at verse 8. Uh, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the gospel story right there, in its entirety. That Christ would come and empty himself and become one of us. Like, become one of us. And he came and he lived and he dwelled among us for 30, about 33 years. And then he died. And by the way, sometimes we think, oh, those Romans, you know, they, they took his life from him. No, 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 no. He gave his life. He gave his life because you and I were in desperate need that somebody would come and pay the price of sin. And that's why one day every knee is going to bow to Jesus who will be crowned as Lord and King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So how does Paul, how does a man like Paul who is chained every day for two years say, I consider everything but loss? They're all but lost. How does someone who's under house arrest say, do not be anxious for nothing, but let the peace of God guard your hearts and mind? How does a man do that? Because if you think like Jesus thought, you will be able to live like Jesus lived. And I believe that's the whole premise that Paul is proclaiming here. Christ has come, he's come to, and, and he's changed us, and he's transformed us, and he's conforming us to his image, so that we too can be agents of change. Go. That's why our mission is connecting people to Jesus and to one another. That is the, our mandate that's, that just kind of burns inside of us because we really believe that is the most important relationship around the globe. This is the most important story ever told. I think all of us, I do think all of us can have the same Attitude is Jesus. I really do. But it's going to require us to think like Jesus thought, and therefore we can live like Jesus lived. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you this morning for just our brief time in the Word. We thank you for this incredible book that you have given us to be able to saturate and, 
and, and gain some insights. And uh, Lord, we, we study a man like Paul, and we say, man, how, how is he so joyful? How does he do that? Day after day after day, knowing how bad his circumstances are. And Lord, that's why we're discovering our joy is not based on our circumstances. It's something that comes directly from you. And so, God, I pray for us as a church family, as a congregation, for those who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Lord, help us to be disciplined in such a way that we begin to think like Jesus thought so we actually can live like Jesus lived. So, Lord, what a dramatic change that would be in our own city if those who claim to be followers of Jesus thought like Jesus thought and lived like Jesus lived. I think we would transform this city because people would begin to notice what God does when he transforms a life. Now, Lord, it's possible, even here this morning, that there are those who feel like they're in dire straits. They feel like it's as almost everything has been lost. And maybe they were just wondering, can this really be true? Can I have joy even in the midst of great loss? Lord, some here this morning, maybe marriages are so rocky, and you're just wondering, I don't think I can find any joy. And Lord, maybe there's some here that are just really dealing with some rebellious children. Maybe some are still dealing from hurt from parents who have not been affirming. I feel so messed up and discouraged inside and, and broken. God, would you be so kind to allow them to open their eyes and catch a fresh glimpse of who Jesus is? A healer of the brokenhearted and a friend of sinners. So in this moment, God, for those who need to call out to you, I pray before leaving here this morning, those who just feel so heavy, that they would cast those burdens onto you, that they could walk out here a little bit lighter because the joy of their salvation has been returned. And then, of course, those who just don't know you, God, we would pray today they would surrender their life and know what it is to have a life transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.